0: When I was growing up, uh, I watched uh, the cartoon Simpsons often. And, you know, I didn't really understand what it was. My parents didn't really understand what it was. You know, immigrants and... And uh, only later, when I got older, I began to understand kind of some of the real humor behind it. But there's this episode in The Simpsons where they went on a family vacation and they go to an amusement park and all of a sudden they get attacked by some evil robots or something. Something ridiculous, right? But then what happened was... Homer Simpson steps in, you know, between the robots and his family as the head of the household, and he says, stop you robots, nobody ruins my family vacation but me, (laughs) right? And, but doesn't, we laugh because it so perfectly encapsulates how our family vacations often are, right? It's ironic, isn't it, right? It's Family vacation is the time that we all go to rest and rejuvenate, right? To relax. But oftentimes we get the complete opposite right arguing you're running late you're everyone's stressed out especially in the beginning you're about to miss the flight or whatnot and it's just ah right it's it's better when it's just normal you're going to school you're going to work everything's taking longer than you think people can't agree you know how to spend the time during vacation right some one person wants to lay around all day the other person wants to hit every single museum in the city and it's ironic isn't it right Vera and I actually made a rule a few years ago that we said if you know, assuming it's not a flight or some, some place that you have to go, it doesn't matter how late we're going, you know, it doesn't matter if we check in past the 4 p.m. mark, if we check in at 12 a.m., it doesn't matter. We're gonna we're gonna stay relaxed, right? And that helps a little bit. But you know, this a similar irony, a similar irony is actually present in this particular passage 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 11 and it might not be very obvious but I'll point it out as we work through the text so right now before we read the God's word let's stand and let's invite the Lord Lord Jesus I pray that as we open up your word that you would be here God That wouldn't be just us trying to make sense, God, with our finite minds, but it would be your spirit speaking to every one of our souls. Lord, reveal something of yourself and of your truth to each and every one of us. Change us, God. I ask this all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 6, if you can please open up your Bibles. We're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, you have, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers to have a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded that you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. This is the Word of God. And today, as we go through this passage, I want to highlight one big idea, and then we'll point out kind of a few other minor points. So let's look at the first three verses. So the Corinthians had a specific problem. They were suing one another, right? Uh and, and Paul begins to address this problem and he starts to argue from the greater to the lesser. And, and and look at what Paul is doing. Paul doesn't just say, hey, stop suing one another, right? Hey, I heard someone suing you. You know, you're suing each other, so stop doing that. No, what Paul does is Paul approaches the problem completely differently. Paul looks at the future. And, and he shows them who they will be in the future. And then he begins to use that as the basis of his argument. In fact, if we look at this entire passage, Paul has one eye on eternity and on one eye on the present world at the same time. He's looking at both worlds. You see, in eternity, when all is said and done, the Word of God says that we who are Christians we will judge the world. This is wild. God will entrust us with the responsibility of sitting there and judging, mediating the entire world. Like just I want to I want to spend a few minutes zooming into this because of how important it is to Paul's argument. You know what's what else is amazing is in the Bible, we see that not only will we judge the entire world, but look at what God will entrust us. If we go to, can go to the next slide, Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking to those who have faith in him. He says, To him who overcomes, I will give the privilege of sitting down with me on my throne." As I also have overcome and have sat down with my father on his throne. This is, for me, this is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Like, what? Jesus will allow us to sit on his throne in heaven? How? How does that make sense? That God will entrust us with ruling the entire universe. Us who opposed God's kingdom, we who were rebels, God has now redeemed and now he is putting on the throne with Jesus Christ himself. I bet you that the latest and greatest marketing schemes out there on social media can't promise you that. They can promise to make you a millionaire in two years, but they can't promise you that you're going to rule the universe. No one has the audacity to promise that except the one who actually does rule the universe. God delights in sharing his rule with his children. And just like he entrusted Adam... When he created the world, and he set him over all his creation, and Adam failed, God takes us, the children of Adam, redeems us, and then he puts us right back onto his throne. It's, it's, we're doing a full loop from the book of Genesis. From the very beginning to the very end, God is placing us back into that same place. We're doing a full circle. And church, this is wild I, and I don't want you to, as you hear this, to think like, oh, wow, yeah, that's, wow, that's amazing. I want you to really think about what this means. Let it soak into your minds. What this means is God, just think, think about this. God is not sneaking us into heaven. You know, like, for example, you know, just opens the back door while the angels are having, you know, celebrating something. He's like, shh, don't let, any, don't let anyone know that I snuck you in, okay? And wear a hood, right? Wear one of those masks. Make sure no one recognizes you. Don't, don't talk to anyone, right? No, that's not what God is doing. God is opening the front door. And he is taking us by the hand, and he is leading us down the very center where everyone can see. And he is putting us on his throne, which is the center, if you think about it, the center of heaven. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? Well, one thing that that tells us for sure is how deeply satisfying the work of Christ On our behalf is. Say that again. The fact that God will do that for us shows how deeply satisfying. The work of Christ, not our own good and works, not our own deeds and purity, but the work of Christ on our behalf is. We who were covered head to toe in sin. We whose every other intention is sinful. We whose hearts were stained with sin no matter how deep you look. Christ has purified us. Christ has washed us. And Christ has satisfied the just wrath of God so completely, so fully, so perfectly and spotlessly that there remains nothing, zero, that God now holds against us or God is somehow embarrassed or ashamed of in us. Just think about the depth of the work of Christ on our behalf. And that is why God is able to elevate us to the highest degree. And no one can tell him, what are you doing? Do you understand who you're putting on your throne? No, no one can tell him that. Because it is Christ who has washed us, who has cleansed us because of his great works. And actually, this fits perfectly into verse 11 of that same passage. If we can go to the next slide. And Paul, as he just talked about all these different types of sinners, and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We were washed. Meaning all the filth has been removed. We are spotless. And think about this. God is the cleanest of all, right? God has, is the purest of all. You know sometimes you come over to someone's house and their house is so clean you're like afraid to make any extra moves. You don't want to get it dirty, right? Right? You know, there's people that have, like, such OCD that you can never please them, right? Everything needs to be perfectly aligned and you can't get any dirt or dust or anything like that. Well, God is the cleanest of all. God has has the highest standards. And still, God has so been satisfied by Christ that we have been washed but the word of God also says that you were sanctified, meaning we are not just now clean like a clean paper towel or a clean paper plate that once it gets used, it gets thrown away, right? We're not just to clean that. It's sanctified means set apart, means made special. We are God's special people god's special person god's special tool it's like that fine china that your mom would have stored away right and she would take it out only when the guests would come and she'd take out she would set it out you'd have a dinner and after that you carefully wash it and you put it right back right or it's that expensive watch or that expensive piece of jewelry that you only wear to special occasions that's what sanctified means in god's eyes we are now sanctified we are set apart for special, for honorable use. And the Word of God also says that we were justified. Now, God's justification is not like man's justification. You can commit a crime, and a human judge can still declare you innocent even though you're actually guilty. Right? The the, the human judge... It may be lack of knowledge. He doesn't have all the evidence, right? Or maybe it's just some legal technicality where he knows you're actually guilty, but he can't proclaim you guilty. And yes, he still has to you know, pronounce you not guilty. But you know that you would still carry that guilt around in your heart. Because you know that before God, I'm still guilty. But God Being all-powerful, all-knowing, judge of the universe, he is not limited like human courts are. He can and will pursue justice to the full extent of not just some human law, but to the full extent of justice. Justice will be perfectly satisfied by God. There will be nothing lacking in his pursuit of justice. And there is nothing that anyone could ever do to stop him, to hold him back from carrying out perfect justice. No lack of knowledge, no lack of power, no processes, no nor legal technicalities. There is no restraint to the justice of God. And so, when the Word of God tells us that we have been justified by God... Then we can have full assurance that if the one who knows all things, the one who knows me better than I know my own self, the one who sees me through and through, and the one who has nothing stopping him, if I have been justified by him, then who can condemn? God is the greatest judge. There is no more appealing after God. There is no higher court, no supreme court that can overturn his decision. We can know that if we are justified by God, then we are actually justified. We are actually free. Christ has taken all of my sins. He has covered all of them. He has carried All of my punishment and God's perfect justice has been perfectly satisfied by Jesus Christ. And now we are truly, truly righteous, worthy of standing in the presence of God without being consumed by the glory of God. We can actually enjoy the presence of God instead of being just killed by our guilt So let's look at verse 11 again. Notice that all of it, all of this, the washing, the sanctification, the justification, all of it doesn't just happen somewhere out there. But it happens in the name of Jesus and in the spirit of God. All this amazing redemptive work does not happen outside or apart from our God. It all happens inside of him. And friends, this is the good news. That we don't need to clean ourselves up and then come to God. Well, I need to, do, I need to fix this problem, just this one problem, and then I can come to God. No, friends, we can come to God exactly as we are. But we need to actually come to him. That's the gospel. God will wash you. God will sanctify you. God will make you righteous. Come to him. Now, looping back, trust me, we're not lost. We're looping back to the fact that we will judge the world, that we will judge angels, and we will even sit on God's throne. The only reason all of that is possible is how satisfying Christ's work on our behalf is. He, Jesus Christ, is the epicenter of all of this, not us. He is the one who came to save and to redeem. He is the one who washes, who sanctifies, who justifies, and he is worthy of all honor. And church, I want us to join in worshiping Jesus for all that he has done for us. This is why we gather. The greatest reason is the worship of God. Everything else, fellowship, encouragement, all that is great. But the highest reason is our hearts worshiping Jesus Christ. And just like in heaven, Revelation 5, 9, we read, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." Church, our God is worthy. And I pray that our hearts would lift up and worship his name for ransoming us with his own blood. So, because of Christ's blood, his sacrifice, we will judge the world. We will sit, we will rule and reign forever and ever. And now going back to verses 1 through 3, this reality of how Christ is going to exalt us, all the glory is going to go to him, but he will exalt us, it becomes the foundation upon which Paul begins to build his argument for why, remember, Christians should not be suing one another. And this is the big idea of today. Eternity, what's coming, what God is preparing for us, should dictate the way that we live right now. And the reason, if we can go to the next slide, the reason I don't use, I didn't say one more slide, the reason I don't say another slide, there you go. The reason I put the word should is because I don't think it always does. Eternity should dictate the way we live now. Paul is saying you will soon sit on the judgment seat infinitely more influential than the Supreme Court of the United States of America. You will be deciding the eternal fate of angels who are more terrible. If you were to see them right now, you would, you would die from fear. And you're going to be deciding their eternal fate. So why why can you not settle tiny little disputes amongst yourselves right now you're going to do way more than that eternity should dictate the way we live now going on to the next slide verse 4 so if you have such cases why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church i say this to your shame can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. If we can go to the next slide, please. Paul is saying, you will be judging angels, and now you need unbelievers to help you settle your dispute? You're brothers in Christ. You're going to be reigning and ruling, sitting together, judging the world, and now you need an outsider to give you moral guidance? You have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God, and you need wisdom from those who don't know anything about God. It's like parents who get into a fight and then they go to their toddler for help reconciling, right? It's like a doctor who goes to his patient for medical advice. It's like a lawyer that goes to his client for legal help. It's absurd. And yet this was what was going on. And still goes on, right? Next slide. Verse 7 says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? I can only imagine the shock that the Corinthian church felt when they heard this letter read for the first time. Right? Like, oh, Paul... Paul wrote a, 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 a letter, you know, this is exciting, you know, something from the apostle, you know. And then he started reading that and just, just the shock, the shock that Paul wrote in there. Even your own brothers. What Paul is saying here, he says to have, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Meaning it doesn't matter if you win that lawsuit you've already lost. You've already lost. Because Paul says it's better to be wronged. It's better to be defrauded for the sake of Christ. But you, you don't just get wronged and let it go. No, you sue back. You attack back. And some of you, some of you are actually defrauding even other Christians. Before we dive Head first into this. I, I do want to, I think there might be some questions that are lingering and I do want to say I don't think that scripture forbids all lawsuits here. I don't think so. If I'm being honest, I don't think so. And I don't think he's banning the use of courts. This question is specifically about Christians defrauding one another and then using the courts to get back at one another, right? And the whole question becomes even more complicated for us living in the 21st century because we have things like insurance policies now, right? And for example, let's say there's a Christian business who has an insurance uh, policy and then a Christian customer from the same church comes and, and gets injured because of the business's fault, right? In order to figure that out it would be right for the business to obviously compensate that person for their injury and their loss and the time they can't work, and it wouldn't be wrong for that person to accept reasonable compensation for that, right? But all of that would have to go through lawyers, probably through mediation, arbitration, all of that. You know, it's, it's a lot more complicated, but there's a difference between being fairly compensated and milking, milking the business and the insurance policy. There's a big difference between that Can a Christian defend themselves in court, let's say, from a non-Christian? I think so. If we look at the life of Paul, when Paul was, when Paul, we read in Acts, when Paul went into Jerusalem for the last time that we read, and and he begins to preach, and the Jews, you know, start revolting. They try to kill him, so the, the Romans capture him before they kill him, bring him inside, and they they stretch him out and they're about to whip him to interrogate him, you know, get some answers out of him. He says, he invokes and he uses the Roman law and his Roman citizenship as a way to protect himself from flogging. He says, is it legal for you to Flog to punish a Roman citizen, right, before a guilty verdict. So I don't think there's anything wrong with using a court system as long as you have the right motive and a pure heart, and there's no simple answer. Also, we read in Acts later, Paul finds out that the Jews want to assassinate him. They want to unjustly kill him, right? And, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, do not resist the evil one, right? So Paul should have, if, you know, if you're taking it literalistically, Paul should have said, okay, well, if they want to kill me, they should kill me. I shouldn't resist them, right? What, but what does Paul do? Paul, again, invokes the Roman law and says, nope, I'm not going to be seen by you guys. I'm going to Caesarea to be tried there on the Romans." terms, right? And then when he's there and the Jews try to bring him back to uh, Jerusalem, he says, I appeal to Caesar. So again, we see him using the court system, using the Roman law as a protection for himself. And in fact, in the book of Romans, we read that the government is called God's servant for our good. Can Christians sue a non-Christian for something? I think if it can be avoided, it should be. There's no black or white rule in scripture though and there's so many examples and it gets and my goal is not to outlay every single edge case and every little scenario i think the most important thing that we need to look at is the heart and the motivation behind all of that and that's where paul starts to talk about in verse 7 because in verse 7 paul makes a very bold statement paul says why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded He's probably echoing Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Again, it's not black and white And, you know, if someone tries to put a ridiculous lawsuit on you and say, hey, uh, you know, they lie about something and they want to take your house, I think you can use the law. You can use the courts to defend yourself reasonably. But, But is the answer always defend yourself always, right? I don't think so. Because we even see when Paul was flogged unjustly in the city of Philippi, they couldn't have done that, right? And when the rulers realize that he was the Roman citizen, they get really scared, right? And so they're like, oh, yeah, just, just leave, just leave. He's like, oh, no, you guys can't do that, right? What he could have done is he could have got them in huge trouble, right? He could have had them removed. He could have stayed there and pressed charges. He could have sued. And yet Paul says, I'm not going to do that. Apology is enough. I got to keep going. I need to, I need to keep focused on the goal, on the mission that God has given me. So to say that, oh, we as Christians should always defend ourselves and exercise our right, I think that also is wrong. I think really we, there has to be a lot of prayer, a lot of wisdom. And there are definitely times when God calls us to just let things go. And that's what Paul says here. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be Defrauded. And both the words of Paul and the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, they only make sense. They only make sense is if we're looking into the future. If we're looking into the eternal because and we see jesus was thinking the same exact way because in that same exact sermon the sermon on the mount just a couple of verses before that jesus says in verse 11 he says blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account look at this verse 12 rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven so he's looking to the future again. He's saying, great is your reward. So rejoice and be happy now when these bad things are happening to you. And the only, that's the only logical way, church, that we can truly accept being wronged, being defrauded, is if we know we are awaiting a reward in heaven. Because without the reward, the math doesn't add up, right? If we have a minus here... Right, If we have a minus here on earth, there needs to be a plus somewhere else. The plus is in heaven. That's for us as Christians. We believe that. And I know that without that, it doesn't add up, right? The math doesn't add up. And some of you might be thinking and saying, Well, no, I think that we should be just just good for the sake of goodness, right? Even if there is no promise of reward, we should just be good. And in response to that, I would say... Let's not try to be better than Jesus Christ himself, right? Jesus Christ himself spoke of rewards all the time. All the Christian authors speak of rewards in heaven, rewards in heaven, rewards in heaven. So let's not try to invent a new morality. Let's not try to be holier and better than Jesus morally, If Jesus talked about rewards and Jesus used rewards as a way to motivate us to to rejoice here on earth when we're getting a minus here, then we should live that way. We can't create some other standard of goodness. Psalm 17, David talks of men of the world whose portion is in this life. Man of the world whose portion is in this life. And then he contrasts those people with his own self. And he says, as for me, I will behold, I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. You see, if we are a people, we right now, the people sitting in this room, If we are a people whose portion is in this life, meaning this world and the things in this world is all that I have, church. If this world, this life is all that we have, then we will never be able to fulfill God's commands of suffering wrong and being defrauded. We will have no power. Because you're taking all that I have. We won't be able to turn the other cheek. We won't be able to give away our shirt and our coat as well. But if we know, if we actually think about the rewards that God is preparing for us in heaven, when we know I've got 50 more coats back at home, and this guy, this homeless guy is trying to steal my coat. You know what? Take the coat. Take the shirt. I've got 50 more at home. Take them all. We'll be quick to give them away. Hebrews ten thirty-four. The author is writing to a group of Christians, and he's describing their experience. He says, When all that you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. What? People take all that you own, and these people are rejoicing. How? For you knew that there were better things waiting for you which will last forever. That's the secret, church. The secret to joy when we get a minus here on earth is knowing that we have better things waiting for us, that God has prepared for us. They were able to accept it joyfully. And Paul's whole argument for why the Corinthians shouldn't sue one another, but instead even accept being defrauded, being wronged, is based on who they will be and what they will have in the world future and so church this is the big question for all of us sitting here am i living in light of eternity do i see my life through the light of eternity and does my current life actually line up with eternity or is there a great disconnect Is there a great disconnect? It's kind of like those days when we're getting ready to go to church and everything's going wrong, right? Kids are crying, house is a mess, you're running late, you start arguing with your spouse while driving. The irony, right? The thick irony. We're going to a place to worship God. We're we're going to a place to draw near to God, the God of peace and love and joy. And we're arguing with one another. And we're mad at one another. We're experiencing the complete opposite experience of where we are heading to. Is there a disconnect Between the place that God is preparing for us and where he is bringing us and where we will spend an eternity and who we will be and what we will have and who I am right now and how my life looks like right now. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Eternity isn't just there somewhere. A lot of people think of heaven as just some place that we're gonna we're gonna come there eventually, and when we get there, it's gonna be awesome and good, and we're gonna thank God and we're gonna worship God. But you know, let's talk about the practical, right? Let's talk about what's actually affecting my life here and now. Eternity is very practical. It should be very practical. It should be guiding our life today, right now, here. I need to be living my life in light of my last day, in light of the time of when I will stand before God. That's how we ought to live. Eternity is extremely practical. It's not just out there, it's here. It's rays are shining into the here. It's guiding, it's leading, it's empowering. And the question is, are we living in its light C.S. Lewis an amazing quote. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought about the next world most. And then he goes on to say, it is since Christians have mostly stopped thinking about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. It's true. I'm convicted by this myself. It's so easy to just get into the groove of this life, into the patterns. And even you think, you know, I, I work for church full time, right? You think it's easy, right? Like that's your, that's, you had one job, right? Think about eternity. Think about God. And yet the lure of the world to just, just even if your physical body is at church, it's so easy To have your life, your soul, your spirit be focused on something completely different. We need to be thinking about the next world more. Going on, last part of this message, last part of this text. If we can go to the next slide, verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know? How does this fit in context of what we're just talked about? You know how it fits? He just talked about people who are defrauding other people. And then he says, "Hey, for you fraudsters, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. You think you're going to heaven because you're in church and you attend every Sunday and you got baptized?" If you're defrauding people, you're not going to heaven. That's what he's saying. There were people in the church who thought they were Christians, but Paul's saying, "You're not actually a Christian. And that's why Paul says, "Do not be deceived. You are going to church. You think you're heading to heaven." And Paul is saying, "Don't be deceived. The reality is, not everyone is going to heaven. The reality is, not everyone going to church is going to heaven. And, and what Paul is saying is, if you're this kind of person, the people that I just described, you're not a real believer. In fact, Paul knew that there were unreal believers in the Corinthian church. He knew that. He said later, just a couple of chapters down, he says, Corinthians eleven nineteen. he says, For there must be divisions among you. Why? Why? in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. He's saying those divisions, they're actually serving the purpose to show who is a genuine believer and who's not a genuine believer. And in the very next letter to the Corinthians, Paul actually says, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, he knew there were unreal believers in the church of Corinth. And this passage, it's not for those who are constantly doubting their salvation after every time they sin, right? It's for those who are deceived, those who think they're good. I'm fine, I'm good, right? Who think everything is great and yet they have these blatant sins. Friends, Are you living in sexual immorality? Are you committing adultery? Are you committing homosexuality? Are you stealing things? I don't care if it's from a person, a store, or the government. Are you being greedy? Are you getting drunk? Are you speaking evil against people? Are you cheating others? Don't be deceived. As I call the band up, I wanna wanna clarify a very important point. I don't think Paul is making this list and he's like with a machine gun shooting at people to bring everybody down. I think Paul is giving this list as an encouragement, as a way to, to help people turn from their sins, right? That's why he says, don't be deceived. He's not condemning them, he's saying, Change, repent, turn to God and inherit the kingdom of God. Stop deceiving yourselves. And right after that, that's why, right after that, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Meaning, he's giving them hope. He's saying, Even if you are in this place, in this position, You could be changed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The goodness and the grace of Jesus is greater than our sin if we actually trust in him. So turn and be washed. In summary, there's one big idea that we looked at today in this passage, and and where Paul rebukes the Corinthians for going to court against one another. And Paul constantly keeps looking at eternity, to heaven, to the future, as a way of explaining the way the Corinthians should live right now. They should be able to figure out their own little disputes in church because one day they're going to sit on the supreme, supreme court of the universe. In fact, they should rather be defrauded because, as Jesus says, Great is your reward in heaven. And so the question for all of us, am I living in light of eternity? Let's stand. We're gonna give you a minute for quiet response time and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we understand that we have no righteousness of our own, but in you we are washed. We're sanctified, we're made righteous, and I thank you for that. God, I pray for anyone who hasn't found that yet, that they would find that in you. God, and I pray that all of us, Lord, myself, my brothers and sisters here, God, that we would live in light of eternity that it would dictate, it would guide, it would lead the way we ought to live today. Lord, we can't do this on our own. Please help us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.